are continuing our Advent series. We've been going through Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, really the, the entire section of that, and we're looking at the meaning of the Advent season, the meaning of what it means for us as Christians to participate and understand the longing that God's people had for the coming of Christ, so that it would inform not only our longing for the return of Christ, but our joy and rejoicing in the fact that Christ has come, that God has fulfilled all the promises he has made to his people in his Son. And that's really what the Christmas season is about. It's a, it's a season of rejoicing, joy to the world. This is a, a moment in history where God has brought good news to a world under a curse, to a world in darkness, he has shown his bright light in Jesus Christ. And there's one key doctrine that I want to focus on that is a great pillar of joy for every Christian. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a pillar of, of why we can have security in the love of God and, and a pillar of why the Christmas season is so important for us as Christians to grasp. And that key doctrine is the doctrine of Adoption. Our adoption in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you want to jump to Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read the first couple verses. This is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for your word, and we pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would help us by your spirit to grasp it, to understand it, and to be transformed by it. We also pray that you would uh, heal Lance's back, that you would provide him relief from the pain, and we pray that you would support and care for him and his family uh, as they approach the holiday season, and we trust that he is under your sovereign and good care. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. There are many doctrines in the Christian life, and one of the important things we have to grasp and why knowing theology is important is seeing how all of these doctrines stick together, how they connect. So one important doctrine of the Christian life is what's called justification, and that's simply God declaring us to be righteous. He forgives us of our sins. 
because Jesus Christ dies in our place. And then he gives us a new status. He attributes to us the perfect life of Jesus. So that's justification. We're forgiven, and God gives us a new status as perfectly righteous in his sight. And the second major doctrine is sanctification. And that is the the gradual process of God making us holy, bit by bit, piece by piece, throughout the course of our entire lives. So in justification, he calls us holy, and in sanctification, he makes us holy. But the doctrine of adoption is what glues those two together. It's what makes them fit together. You might have thought this in your life, when you maybe were a new Christian, or maybe you still think about this now. You go, okay, I'm a Christian now. God has forgiven me of my sins, past, present, future. It's done with. So, like, I can sin as much as I want, right? Isn't that what, I mean, that feels wrong, but that seems like that's what it means, right? He just forgives us. It's God's job to forgive, so we can just sort of live how we want, and that's fine. But you flip to the other side and you go, no, we're supposed to obey and we're supposed to please God. But then you can start going, well then, but like, does that mean that God loves me more when I'm obeying him? Does that mean I can earn God's love in some way? How does that work? And we sort of ping pong back and forth. We go, oh, God loves me no matter what, but I have these patterns of sin. I don't think that's right. And then we start to try to work on our sin and we go, "Ah, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And we just swing back and forth. And what brings those two doctrines of justification and sanctification together is adoption. Adoption. It resolves this tension. We can be secure in our justification. We can be secure that we're forgiven by God and that He'll never leave us and forsake us because now we are His children. He is our Father. And He will never cease to be our Father. We can't sin our way out of that. We're part of His household now. That's our new identity. That's what our baptism demonstrates. But we're encouraged to grow in our sanctification. We're encouraged to put sin to death, to grow in our obedience, because this same loving Father is committed to raising us, to growing us up, to forging in us maturity and character and Christ-likeness. God has redeemed us. He's bought us out of slavery under sin's authority to live in his home under his authority. And that brings into focus the security we have as Christians, but also the motivation we have as Christians to grow in holiness. And so we see in Galatians chapter 4, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote Galatians, spells it out for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from sin in order that we might know the joy of adoption. Adoption is central to what it means to be a Christian. And J.I. Packer, the great author, said that to call God a father might be the highest privilege of a Christian. We can know God as our Heavenly Father. And I think there's three reasons for us to rejoice, especially in this Advent season, in our adoption. Three gifts that this adoption gives us. First, adoption gives us a new foundation. 
Second, adoption gives us a new future. And finally, adoption gives us a new family. A new foundation, a new future, a new family. First, the new foundation we have as God's adopted children. The book of Galatians is such a powerful text because what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is he's writing to a church that is under the influence of false teachers. There's a group called the Judaizers. And one of the things that the Judaizers are teaching is this. You need something more than Jesus to be saved. You need something more than trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you in his death and resurrection to be right with God. And that something more is circumcision. And in addition to that, it's not just circumcision, but moral obedience to the law of Moses. Now, the the logic behind why they say this is because they're saying, well, God, in the first five books of the Bible, in, in what's called the law of Moses, Moses commanded that all of God's people be circumcised. So why wouldn't that be the case now? And Paul is saying, no, look, circumcision was a temporary thing until the fullness of time came and Jesus Christ came to fulfill circumcision, to fulfill the dietary laws, to fulfill all of the Jewish distinctions so they were no longer necessary. And that's why Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, can be part of God's family. So in Christ, all those things have been fulfilled. So we don't need those things anymore. You don't need to add to Jesus because Jesus, in him, in his death and resurrection, has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for God's people. And Paul is very clear on this point. If you require Christians to be circumcised in addition to faith in Christ, or if you add any other thing in addition to simple trust in the work of Christ on your behalf, you lose the gospel. You can't have faith and a little bit of works, even if it's 1%. Because if there's anything in you that merits God's salvation, it's no longer of grace. It's no longer a free gift. And you have lost the very message of salvation that Christ came to bring. It's an all-or-nothing game. And Paul... It's interesting what Paul says. He says, if you think that you can obey the law to avoid the curse of sin, you're sadly mistaken. And we often think that people who are self-righteous take the law too seriously, right? But the reality is the Judaizers didn't take it seriously enough. Paul says, "Why stop? if you're going to use the law to justify yourself, if you're going to say, God, part of the reason or some of the reason or any part of the reason that you should save me is because I have shown obedience to your law, he says, you have to do the whole thing. You can't just say, oh, I'm circumcised. Anyone who wants to be justified by the law must complete everything that is written in it. It's all or nothing. You have to fulfill the entire law perfectly if you want to be right with God. That's one option. Or, the other option is the righteous will live by faith. You can trust in what Jesus Christ did on your behalf so that you might be saved. But you can't mix them. 
So Paul is very strong on this point. You cannot trust in yourself and any goodness in yourself and any moral performance in yourself to be made right with God. The only hope you have is Christ. And this idea of the curse of the law is is throughout the entire Bible. And what it's meant to do is to show us that nobody can obey the law. We're all under that curse. And Paul is saying the glory of the gospel and the beauty of grace is that we can't boast in ourselves. If you believe that Jesus Christ has done everything on your behalf, there's nothing you can boast in. You can only boast in Christ. And the message that we see at the fullness of time, what does God do? He looks at our rebellion, he looks at our sin, he looks at our self-righteousness, and his answer and his response to our rebellion is not to crush us immediately, not to eradicate the human race, which he could. It is to send his son into the world to be born under the law to die for sinners, to redeem them from the just penalty that the law has against us. That is the heart of grace. That is the heart of the gospel. And that provides a new foundation of security for us as God's children. We're not God's children by natural birth. Everybody today kind of says, you know, we're all God's children and, you know, God loves us just the way we are and all these things. But the reality is the Bible points a different picture. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, we find out that we are children of wrath by nature. We're not cute and cuddly people that God looks down and just like, oh, I wish I could just have you in my family. This is not the, the reality that sin has, has molded us into. It's not the reality that the Bible paints. In reality, we are God's enemies. We are rebels against his rule. We're not his natural children. And J.I. Packer has a great illustration about how adoption figures into that. Parents have an obligation to love their natural children, right? I mean, if you see a parent loving their biological child, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? In fact, if they don't, you're like, that's a terrible parent. But people don't have that same obligation to adopt somebody. That's a free choice a family makes to welcome another person who's not related to them into their family, But it goes even a step beyond that. We're not just orphans adopted, but again, we are enemies. And this is the radical nature of God's love. He has no obligation to his enemies. He has no obligation to people who rebel against him, who buck up against his rule, who don't want anything to do with him. He has no obligation to them. And yet in his favor, he takes enemies. He washes them clean. And he brings them to his family. He sets his love upon them. There's no obligation to do so. He's perfectly just in leaving us. And yet he is so full of mercy that he would welcome us to his table. And you you might have gone through a period where you realize your sin. I mean, we we all have those moments where we agonize. We're just like, I don't love God enough. I know And then this New Year's coming, you're like, I'm going to get my spiritual disciplines in order. That's great. And we can 
feel our inadequacies and we can say, oh, I just don't serve enough and all these things. And sometimes, sometimes we can actually become very self-serving in that agonizing. Of course we don't love God enough. Of course we don't serve enough. Of course we don't obey enough. And in fact, it's worse than we think. We are more apathetic than we realize. We are more prideful than we realize. Because as soon as we start to get everything together, as soon as you start that Bible reading plan and you finally make it past Leviticus, what starts to happen? Pride. You start to boast in yourself. You start to maybe look down on others. That's how pervasive sin is. It's worse than we think. wants us to get over ourselves. That's difficult because we love ourselves. So a Christian who matures in their faith is not someone who's merely sitting and wallowing and navel-gazing at their sin. A person who's maturing in the grace of God is also growing in rejoicing for the vast mercy that God has for sinners. I, I hear from uh, you know, people who you know, couples who, they have kids, and they start raising their kids, and then they always start to, like, call their parents being like, Mom, I'm so sorry. Like, I had no idea I was like that. They realize just how dedicated their own parents were to them, how much they put up with, how patient they were, and how dedicated they were to them when they were young, once they start raising their own kids. I think in a similar way, as we grow, as we recognize the depths of our sin, as we start to realize how deep some of our idols go, we realize just how merciful and patient God is towards us. We realize just how high a cost it was for Christ to give his life up for us. And we recognize the absolute security of our status as his children. And the foundation of our relationship with Christ and our relationship as God's children is not our potential. It's not God looking at us and going, I'm going to save you because I think you're going to be a really great servant for the kingdom. It's not our performance. It is God's free and gracious choice to set his love upon rebels, upon sinners. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves sinners. And he gives us a new foundation, a new start, a new life in Christ. The second thing that we receive in our adoption is a new future. God grants us a new future. We talked about how God's law curses those who disobey it. But one of the things the law also does is not only, not only does, he, does the law expose our sin, but the law actually provokes our sin. In other words, we're not basically good people who occasionally make mistakes. But as Ephesians 2 says again, we are dead in our trespasses. We are enslaved to the passions of our bodies and our minds, our sinful passions. We are controlled by our anti-God bias. We are controlled by sin in our hearts apart from the grace of God. And so God's law not only shows us that we're sinners, but, but and, and this is the whole predicament Paul finds in Romans chapter 7. 
that the law reveals our sin and then it makes us want to sin even more. And you know this in your life. If you've ever been in an argument, right? You're in a heated argument, emotions are high, and then somebody says something that's, you know, they're right. They're 100%. They've got you dead to rights. They've won the argument. And of course, we all do what? Immediately humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. Now, what do we do? We double down. In fact, the very exposure of our wrongdoing makes us even angrier, (laughs) makes us even more uh, willing to dig our heels in and defend ourselves. Well, that's the way the law of God prods us. It reveals our sin, and then we just want to sin more. And that's the relationship we have with sin apart from the grace of God. Think about the two lies that Satan used to tempt Eve in the book of Genesis. You won't die if you sin. And God does not want you to be like him. If you eat from the tree, you're going to be like God. And God doesn't want that. God is withholding something good from you. Right? That's the word of God, the law of God. And the very first thing that Satan targets is whether God said it and whether it's good. And we've all thought these things. That's how sin works. It cuts us off from the very source of life we need, from God himself. And it deceives us into thinking that chasing after death, after sin, will bring us what only God can provide. It's self-destructive. If any of you have known people who wrestle with substance abuse or or drug addiction. One of the most tragic things is, is what? The person, on the one hand, recognizes this is destroying me, and yet, and this is destroying my future, and yet the needs of the present overcome that. I'm willing to trade my future, I'm willing to trade all these terrible consequences and and the pain and the hurt for momentary fleeting pleasure. And we make that trade-off every time we sin. All that matters is now. All that matters is our own fulfillment. And that is life under the shadow of Adam. That is life under the shadow of the curse of the fall. And Christ comes as a man to undo that destructive downward spiral. It's so important that Jesus Christ came as a human person, as a man, as truly human in every sense of the word, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus Christ is the perfect human. He shows us what true humanity is, that a a flourishing, true human being is someone submitted to every word that comes from God. So we are not designed to live in sin. We are not designed to live in rebellion to God. We are designed to live under God's authority in obedience to him. And that the future that God has planned for us is a future that looks like Jesus. That's his future for all of us, that we would would cultivate Christ-like character and be like his son. And Christ assumes our humanity to heal it. So being a Christian isn't ceasing to be a human being. It is becoming the very human being that God designed us to be. And the prototype of that is Jesus Christ. He assumes our human nature to heal us and to show us this 
is the actual destiny that God wants for his creatures, to be like Christ. And how does that happen? We follow him. We obey the words of our Father. The Father raised his Son on earth through trials and instruction. That's what Hebrews 5.8 teaches us. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Christ was instructed by the, the law. He was taught the words of God, and he obeyed them perfectly. And Christ, as our older brother, is our example. We follow him. We do the same thing. We submit to our Father's loving authority. Families form our character in ways that are, that are more caught than taught, right? I mean, for better or for worse, the way your family interacts, the traditions that they have, how they talk to each other, how they resolve conflict, those interactions over time have a profound impact on our character. And God molds us in the same way. He molds us through the habits that we have. Prayer, preaching, singing, meditation on the Word, serving one another, praying for each other. And He molds us through the words that He speaks as we hear the Word of God explained and read out loud. And over time, our life in the household of God, under his fatherly rule, begins to shape us and change us to look like Christ. But you have to understand that God's authority is central to this. This is his fatherly authority. He's not giving suggestions when he gives us commands. You must do these things. He's not taking a poll from his kids, asking them, how do you guys want to be raised? He's the father, we are the children. So when we join the household of God, God has a vision of our future, of what he wants us to be. But he also says, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to get you there. So you're living in my house, you submit to my rules, and through my rules, I'm going to mold and shape you to the glorious future that I have for you, to look like Jesus. And this means it's not enough to simply avoid sin. That's not the Christian life, just avoiding bad things. It's also cultivating Christ-likeness. You put off the old self, and what do you do? You put on Christ. You, you cultivate virtue in your life. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, towards the end, Paul gives a series of commands that are fascinating. He says, this is what it looks like to turn away from sin and also to put on Christ. People who lie, stop lying. Put that off. But also put on telling the truth in love. Speak the truth. He says, if you're a thief, yes, stop stealing. But don't just stop stealing. Work honestly, and then when you get your paycheck, be generous with it. Replace your greed with generosity. If you are slandering people, yes, stop slandering, but replace that with forgiveness and grace and building other people up. If you are corrupt in your speech, stop that and replace it with gratitude. Put off, put on. And that process is how God molds us, not just to look like people who don't sin, but also people who seek righteousness, 
who look like Christ? Are you growing into the future God has for you as his child? Are you cultivating a life that reflects God's fatherly rule and authority? It's a question we all have to ask. So God gives us a new foundation. He sets his love on sinners and brings them into his family. And then when we're in his family, he gives us house rules and commands to mold us into the future he has for us to look like Jesus. He wants to raise us into maturity. And the final gift he gives us is a family. He gives a foundation, a future, and finally he gives us a new family. God doesn't just mold us in our personal devotional times. He certainly does do that, but that's not the the extent of his work. One of the primary ways that God molds us is through the local church, through God's people. John Calvin once said that nobody has God as his father if he does not first have the church as his mother. And what he means by that is God, our father, raises us through the instrument of the church who nourishes us who cares for us, and who matures us as Christians. And that's not some super spiritual abstract thing. It's like, how does God change us? He puts us in a room with other sinners that are different from us and says, you're one, you've got to love each other. That's really hard. I know. I have your, you have my spirit to help you do that. To chip away at the rough edges, to force you to think outside of yourself, to actually apply the commands that God has. And Galatians is, is so powerful on this. It, Paul emphasizes the unity that we have in Christ. Right? It's not a matter of race, ethnicity, or gender. But our faith and our status as Christians, as in Christ, we are redeemed. That's the most fundamentally true thing about us. It doesn't erase gender. It doesn't erase ethnicity. Jesus Christ is still a resurrected biological man with a Jewish descent. That hasn't changed. But that is not the most fundamental thing about what unites us as Christians. Our status in Christ is. And this is God's plan to undo the shattering of the fall, the disunity of the fall. It's to bring people of all tribes, tongues, and nations under the same rule of his son. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. That's why Galatians stresses we, not me. We have received adoption as sons. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law. There's a corporate aspect to this. We are heirs of all that God has promised us. And God's family is not some sentimental idea. Oh, we're all family. We love each other. I love you. there's, There's teeth to it. God wants us to be a holy family that reflects his holy character. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, the first two verses. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So God expects his beloved children to imitate him by walking in love like Christ. And we have to define love correctly. Nowadays, love just means be nice to people. Love is just don't make people feel bad about anything. But Paul continues and says, this is what I mean by a community of love. In the rest of chapter 5, verses 3 to 11, I'm just going to list out what he says. He says, a loving, holy people of God will put away sexual immorality, filthiness, and idolatry. 
They will warn people about empty words and false teaching. They will expose the shameful works of darkness. They will not get drunk on wine. They will not waste time in foolishness. Instead, they're going to sing to each other. They're going to submit to each other. They're going to have thanksgiving. They're going to be tender-hearted. They're going to forgive one another. All those one another's teach us something important. If you're part of God's family, something is expected of you. You now have obligations to your new family. There are people who need your encouragement, who need your prayer, maybe even need your correction, who need your kindness. This is the call of a Christian. And one of the most humbling things that happens is you get into church and you actually try to be a church. You actually try to get to know people. You try to actually serve other people. And you realize, there's some people I really don't like. Right? We, we just don't get along. And you have to realize, God's their father too. Wait a minute. I don't have to be their best friend, but we're bonded together by the Spirit of God. That's my brother. That's my sister. And something is required of me. I need to love them. I need to be tender-hearted towards them. I need to be gracious towards them. I need to see the good in them. Because we're part of the same household. And that God has forgiven, adopted, and is raising them just as he is raising me. That's a radical call in our lives. And the Apostle Paul knows how fickle human love can be. If you read Galatians, Paul all over the place is basically going, I, I shared the gospel with you guys. You guys know my heart. The last time I was there, you guys loved me, and now you don't like me anymore because I said some things that you didn't like. And you read First and Second Corinthians, and just Paul is just like, I planted your church, and now you're doubting whether I care about you at all. So he knows how fickle public opinion can be. He knows how fickle people's love can be. But he never stops loving the church. He never stops loving those people. And he knows the temptations. That's why in Galatians, Paul warns us. He says, don't bite and devour each other. He's talking to Christians. He knows the temptation. You're going to want to use your freedom for selfishness, not to serve each other. You're going to want to just bite and consume and attack each other. And he says, this is against walking by the Spirit. Watch yourselves. All of this is against God's Spirit. And God's law is not some arbitrary checklist for God to, you know, be like, you didn't do this, but you did do this. What, it, what does Jesus say is the point of all the law of God? The whole law hangs on what two commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. And that's the call. I'm all for limited government, right? But we have to realize what we're asking for. That means it's on us to care for orphans and, vid and widows, right? That means we're going to feel a pressure to go, oh, we have to do this. We have to care for the least of these. We can rail against celebrity culture in the church. Oh, it's terrible. But that means that's not up to John Piper to encourage your small group. That's on you, right? Tim Keller's not going to pray for you guys. You need to pray for each other, right? That's our responsibility 
as God's family. We are to walk in love as God's holy people, and judgment begins in the household of God, not out there somewhere. It begins here. We may be a dysfunctional family at times. It may be very difficult, but we're bonded together by the Spirit of God, and we have to embrace that call to live as God's new family, to live as people who love each other in word and deed, not in sentimental, Instagram-worthy ways, but in the very nooks and crannies of our actual, real, daily lives. And these three privileges, our new foundation, our future, and our new family, should give us great joy. I hope that's something that permeates your heart this Christmas season. If you want to fight against the consumerism of Christmas, don't write a blog post. Rejoice that God has adopted you in Christ despite your sin. Meditate on that. Sit with that. Recognize that despite the gravity of your sin, Christ came and died for you. You don't have to worry about these crazy New Year's resolutions. Instead, ask God, help me. How do I, this year, how do I, what do I need to put off? And what do I need to put on in Christ? What habits do I need to replace? What virtues do I need to cultivate in this new year? And as we get out of 2020, with all of its craziness, all of its divisiveness, all of the, the chaos, remember what happened when we were saved. We were saved not just to God, but to each other. We're a new family. Repent of the bitterness, the malice, the hatred, and extend tenderheartedness, mercy, bear one another's burdens, care for each other. We're God's family. That's got to mean something real. And isn't that what the world needs? Shouldn't the church be the forefront of what it looks like for humanity to be reconciled to itself? That we would be a beacon to the world. This is what it looks like to live as true human beings with God under God's gracious fatherly rule with each other. That would be a powerful witness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would strengthen our hearts to believe it. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, there are many challenges that will face us in the future. We trust that you are caring for us as you remind us of our adoption as your sons and daughters, as you encourage us through your family to grow in love, to grow in hope, to grow in faith. And Lord, we pray that you would do a work among us of transformation, that as your word saturates our church, we would be molded and transformed by it so that we would look like Christ. 
And we know that you hear our prayers because you hear the cries of your children. And there are many cries that we have in this room. There are many things we are calling out to you for. And so we ask that in your grace you would stoop down and hear us. That you would give us a measure of grace to understand the love that you have for us. And that you would sustain us through all the trials and the journeys ahead of us. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.